we are now going to have our Bible reading, and Kate is going to come and read to us. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. Could I please encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 17? Uh, If you're at home and you can see it somewhere, jump up, grab it, turn to 1 Samuel 17, and follow through if you've got it on your phones. That is 1 Samuel 17, and keep that open for the talk so you can check what James is saying. So that's 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him... Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I buy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And if you'll turn with me to verse 32, we'll continue. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armour. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armour. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. And the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armour in his tent. We know this story really well, don't we? (laughs) The taunting giant shouts up from the valley. The Israelite army have got no idea what to do and they are shaking in fear. King Saul has no idea what to do. And then there's the offer from that heckling, humongous human Goliath from the valley. You know how the offer goes? (laughs) Come on, come on, send someone down to fight me. And if he wins, we'll be your servants. But if I win, you are going to be our servants. We know how this story goes, don't we? But it says in verse 11, I think it is, that the Israelites are greatly afraid and dismayed, aren't they? That they're terrified. They don't know what to do. They don't have a warrior like Goliath. They've got no one as big as him and with the technological advancements that he has. But the trouble is, there's a stalemate. Somebody's got to go. Somebody has to fight him. Somebody has to do something, but we've got no one to send. They've sent out their champion. But do we have a champion? 
They've sent out their war hero, but do we have a hero? Nobody knows what to do. Now let's be really honest this morning. We know how this story goes, don't we? I mean, I'm pretty sure. I mean, even if, let's say you've grown up in church. You've probably heard this a hundred times. And you'll probably hear it a hundred times more. And even if you are coming to church for the first time this morning, this is the first time you've ever even tuned in with us, I'm guessing you've got some idea of how this story goes. I don't think there's going to be anybody sitting here this morning thinking to themselves, I just had no idea David was going to win. That really got me. I mean, nobody is going to be sitting there spellbound on their garden bench this afternoon just thinking, man, that was a curveball. David won. I had no idea. We all know the story, don't we? Let's be honest. We know how this turns out. So I think the way we have to approach this this morning is it's kind of similar perhaps how we would look at a sunset. You know, now in, 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 in the, the days to come, the nights are going to draw out. And particularly in the autumn, the big Suffolk skies on the western horizon are going to come alight with fiery hues. And we get to see the beautiful sunsets. Now, we will see sunset after sunset after sunset. But maybe you're like me. I'm pretty sure you are. And you'll look across one evening. And even though you've seen seven great sunsets over the last month, you still want to look at that one and take a moment to just drink it in, don't you? And you might see another great sunset the following few evenings, and you're going to stop for a second and just think, wow, that's amazing. So you see them often, but it doesn't seem to take away the amazement. I mean, it's still beautiful. It's still stunning. It's still those moments that take your breath away. I've seen a sunset before, but they still get me. I'm familiar with the scene, but I still love it. Maybe that's how we have to approach this this morning. We know how this story turns out. We've heard it before. We've seen it before. We've read it before. We'll read it again. But just like we would stand amazed by a sunset that we have seen before, maybe we stand amazed at this story again this morning. And we say, look at what God has done. Look at who he is. Look at how our God saves his people. I am amazed at what I'm reading. Now what I want to do this morning is look a little bit more closely at David. Because in this scene, I think it's David is the one who stands out. He's the one who God has selected to be the future king of Israel. He's been anointed. He's Jesse's eighth son. David is the guy who seems to be above everyone else. He's got something that no one else on this historic battle scene has. So I want to take a close look at this guy, David. What's he really like? What kind of a king, future king, Is this David like? I want to have a look at four key areas in David's character this morning for us. I want to have a look at David's confidence, i.e. where David's confidence lies. I want to have a look at his motives. What is it that's driving David into this battle? What's propelling him? Then I want to have a look at David's weakness. How does God use his weakness in an incredible way. And then finally, have a look at David's victory. Now, now once we've looked at those four things, I want to bring this down to earth into our lives and begin to think about how this historic battle scene moment meets people like us today. Okay, let's set the scene a little bit more, shall we? We have something of a symmetry going on in this scene. We've got two hills, 
And on these two hills, we have armies. We have the Philistines on one side, and then we have the Israelite army. Then the Philistines send out their, what's the word, champion. Now, the literal reading in the Hebrew here is that the man who goes between comes out into the valley. He's big, he's got armor, he's got weapons. And he comes with his taunts. He comes with an arrogant swagger. Now, the Philistine army, obviously waiting there as well, and they're feeling pretty confident too, because this is Goliath. Now, the Philistines are a historic enemy of the Israelites. They're the people who live out towards the Mediterranean near a place called Gath. And they're known to be a warmongering people, usually with better war technology than Israel, using better and stronger materials. Now, they've been a thorn in Israel's side for quite a while, and now they're proving themselves to be the kind of people who will continue to be a thorn in their side. Now, on the other side of this valley, remember, this is the Valley of Elah. On the other side, we have a hill, and the Israelite army is encamped. They are dismayed and greatly uh, greatly afraid. And they have a king called Saul who has no idea what to do. These people on this hill are completely paralyzed by fear. There's a stalemate because they don't have a Goliath. Now, then what happens in this scene is David, Jesse's eighth son, is sent to go and take some supplies to the ranks. And while he's delivering these supplies, he goes to greet his three oldest brothers who are on the front line. Now there's this wonderful phrase as David comes and greets his brothers. It says, David heard him. This is the uh-oh moment. Because David hears this giant taunting from the valley. David hears this often repeated offer to fight. And David is completely incensed. To say he's bothered, it's an understatement. He's angry. How dare that giant speak about my God and God's people in that way? He has defied the armies of the living God. David wants to fight. With a conversation with Saul, as we've just read, he doesn't go in with Saul's armor, but David goes down to face Goliath. Now let's take a look at this David character, because he's different. He stands out. Let's begin by looking at David's confidence. Where does his confidence lie? Now I think we can see David's confidence by contrasting him with Goliath and everyone else on this battlefield. Now what we have towards the top of chapter 17 is an unusually detailed description of Goliath's setup. Let, let's re, reread verse 4 downwards, uh, onwards. And, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Remember, champion is the man who goes in between. The height was six cubits and a span. Most scholars agree that it, that's somewhere between eight and nine feet. Size is on his side. He's massive. Then he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, this just continues. It's crazy detailed. And he had a bronze, uh, had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. The shield bearer went before him. This guy is scary. This guy is totally intimidating. But what we get given by the author here is 
is a really unusually detailed description of what he's like. It's like the author is trying to say to us, if you could come up with someone who is completely terrifying to fight with, I've got someone who's worse. I've got someone who's bigger. I've got someone who's way more scary than you could ever come up with. Look at this guy. Famous uh, uh, theologian and writer Robert Alter said, everything is given gargantuan size and weight in this. And it's creating a thematic effect. This guy is scary. That's why they're scared. Now think about Goliath though. Where does his confidence lie? I mean, as we read through this, why has he got that swagger? How can he taunt like that? Well, it's because he's big, he's got the armor, and he's got the weaponry. His confidence and his swagger is coming from the fact that he sees himself as somebody who's going to beat anyone hands down, and it doesn't matter. His confidence is in his weapons, right? It's in his size, it's in his armor. But if you think about it, the same is true for the Philistines. Because the Philistine army are sending out their champion down into the valley of Allah. So all of their confidence relies on Goliath too. This guy, we're going to send him out on in front. He's, he's going to deal with someone done and dusted. This is going to be easy. It's going to be quick. So all of their confidence resides in the same place as Goliath. Now here's what I think is interesting. that On the other side of the valley, the Israelites, their confidence is in the same place too. But it's just a bit upside down, isn't it? Because they're, they're saying, well, well, the reason we've not sent anyone is because we don't have a Goliath. So, so, so in, a, in a roundabout way, they are putting their confidence in the same place. Well, we don't have swords like that. We don't have armor like that. And we certainly don't have a warrior as big as that. You see, what's interesting is everybody on this battle scene is placing their confidence in the same place. We don't have anyone like Goliath. We do have someone like Goliath. Everybody's terrified on this side. But here's where David stands out, because he's the only one in this scene who's putting his confidence in a different place. Now have a look at verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Now, of course, Saul is reluctant in his response to David. Look, you're young, David. This Goliath, he's been a man of war since his youth. Essentially, David, you don't stand a chance. But look what David does, what he says. These are some really cool and key verses right here. Verse 34, David says, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of its mouth. And when he arose against me, I love this, makes me laugh, I caught him by his beard. (laughs) So lions and bears had beards in those days. I think what it means here is they grabbed him by the mane, by the hair, right? I, I, I grabbed him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Look at what David does now. He interprets all of those defeats against wild beasts as the Lord's deliverance. Look at verse 37. This is so key. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now notice that. This is what's setting David apart from everyone else in this scene. They have their confidence in the weapons, in the size, in the armor. What's David saying? My confidence is in the Lord. David is saying, look, my history and my experience has shown me that my God will deliver me. 
I have seen my God do this before. I know what my God is like. So I have every reason to believe when I step into this battle that my God is going to continue to be the God he has always been to me. You see that? And it's really interesting. Often you find in the Psalms in particular where God's people are called to retell the stories of his mercy. Now why would they be told to do that? Because when we remember what God is like and what he's done, that not only fills us with faith to the day, for today, but it gives us confidence in him for the tomorrow, right? Isn't that exactly what David is saying? I know who my God is. I know what he's done. So I am trusting in him in this situation. Thank you very much, Saul. So his confidence is in the Lord. Now let's think about David's motivation. What is it that's driving David here? Now I think we can uncover what's driving David by looking at what makes him angry and also what he says to Goliath just before he flings that stone at his forehead. Now, now the thing about anger here, this will be true in our lives. What makes us angry will usually reveal the thing that we love the most. Now, or what we're, what we're angry about will usually reveal what drives us most in our lives. So, so say, for example, think about some things that would make you angry. Somebody says something unkind to one of your kids. Is that going to make you angry? Yeah, you're going to be bothered by that. Now, now why are you bothered by that? It's because you love your children so much. Or, or what if somebody badmouths your favorite sports team? You're going to get bothered about that, right? Now, if I was to say Norwich City or a bunch of hooligans, a true statement. But if you're a Norwich fan, you're going to get really bothered by that, aren't you? Why? Because for some strange reason, you love Norwich. If you think about it, that's what's going to make... Your anger is going to reveal what you love. And if somebody threatens your reputation and you get angry about that, that's revealing you love your reputation. Somebody threatens your security or your achievements. Maybe they badmouth that. And you get angry? That's showing you what's driving you and what you love. Now, the same is true in David. What's he bothered by? That giant, he has defied the armies of the living God. We're beginning to see something that's driving David as he approaches Goliath for the battle. But there's also more here. Because David goes on to face Goliath. And as he faces him, Goliath taunts him, says, What am I, a dog? You come at me with sticks. But then David responds to him. Have a look at this in verse 45. We see David's motivations here. You come at me with a sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lords of Hosts, the Lord of Hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, follow these words: the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Look at this line right here: that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all of the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. See, see, David's angry at the fact that Goliath is taunting, dragging the name of his God and God's people through the mud as he swaggers through that valley. But then what does David say? Look, I'm going to take you down, Goliath, and I'm going to take your head off. And what's going to result in all of that is he says those two things. All of the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. 
And that the whole assembly right here, so everybody in the battlefield is going to know that the Lord doesn't save with a sword and spear. Do you notice right here, David is bothered by Goliath because he's bringing God's name and God's people into disrepute. And David is saying his motivation for the fight is what? It's God's fame. So in many ways, David's approach into this battle is evangelistic. He's being driven by God's fame. I want the world to know that there is a God in Israel. And I want everyone here to know how God saves. David's motivation to fight Goliath is one of God's fame. He can't stand to hear the mocking of Goliath. And he wants to see the Lord's name rightly elevated. And God's people not to be talked about like that. Let's have a look at David's weakness here. Have a look at his weakness What we have is both armies are sending out their fighters. We've got Goliath, who's the champion from Gath. And now we have David coming out, who's the unexpected Israelite representative or champion. I wonder if you notice, both Goliath and David are doing the things that they have only ever known what to do. Goliath is a man of war since his youth. He's doing what he's always known. David, how, how does he approach the battle? He's, he's got a staff, he's got a shepherd's pouch with stones and a sling. He's looking like a shepherd, and he's doing what he's always known. But this is where the similarities stop, because David is coming from a place of weakness, contrasted with Goliath. Think about Goliath. You, you try and describe somebody who's the picture of strength and the picture of power, you're probably going to come up with somebody like him. But David is coming out of weakness. You remember last week when we started our series and we looked at how David was anointed as future king by Samuel. Samuel goes to David's dad, Jesse, and says, I need to see your sons. And Jesse gives him seven sons, right? And says, here's my family. Essentially, Jesse's saying, here's my whole family. And then Samuel asks the question, well, you must have another son. You guys remember this last week. And he said, oh, yeah, we've got another, I've got another son, yeah. The run to the family, oh, him. Yeah, David, he's doing the very job that no one else wants to do. And we said that that's showing us that David is the forgotten son of Jesse. He's the nobody of the family. He's the guy who's being sidelined. Now, here's what's amazing, is that in this place of weakness, God is providentially preparing David for this fight and to be king. It's from this place of weakness It's from the place of being a nobody, sidelined the forgotten son of Jesse. It's so upside down, but it ends up being that it's in this place of being a nobody that God prepares him to be somebody who's going to take down the intimidating giant that no one else will face. So God is proving his strength through David, but he does so from a place of weakness. I also think in this scene, it's really quite cool. That David's weakness, coming from a place of weakness, is is not only proving him to be a better warrior than Goliath, he's also being proven to be a better king than Saul. Now, way back in the book of Judges, a couple of books back, Judges 20, I think it's verse 16, the Benjaminite tribe in Israel are described as being experts with the sling. It says that they they can hit a hair. Now, they're that accurate with it. They can get it with a stone. They're that good. Now, David's not a Benjaminite, but he seems to be using his sling just like a Benjaminite. And what's amazing in this scene is there is a Benjaminite. 
King Saul is. Isn't that amazing? That David is doing the very thing that Saul really should be quite good at. It's almost as though we're being told underneath all of this that David is out Benjamining the Benjaminite king. He's proving himself to be a better king. And it's all coming from a place of being a nobody, sidelined, and a place of weakness. Fourth thing I want to look at, David's victory. We love this, don't we? Look at verse 49. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David, verse 50, prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Jump down, verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. So David wins. That weak shepherd boy, the forgotten son of Jesse, ends up being the hero that Israel needed. When they were paralyzed with fear, King Saul didn't know what to do because the Philistine champion was all too intimidating and the stakes were too high. They couldn't do a thing, but God provides a saving, delivering future King David to come and be Israel's champion. And from a place of weakness, with the motivation of God's fame, David defeats Goliath. He's dead and beheaded. Completely unexpected. But David is standing above everyone else here. David is different. Now we've got to ask a question now. Don't we? What does this story mean for us today? Isn't that the big question? Who am I supposed to identify with in this story? Who am I here? What are we being taught through this? Here's what I'll say. The message of this. What we're being shown is that when God's people are completely paralyzed with fear in the face of their greatest nightmare, God provides a saving, delivering, hero, champion king to fight the battle that they could not fight, nor neither did they want to fight. When they are paralyzed in this fear and can't move, Afraid and greatly dismayed, God raises up a man who will go down into the valley that God's people wouldn't go down into, face a giant that they didn't want to face, and win a battle that they could never win. God provides his champion. All right, here's the question. Where does it leave us? Well, the thing is, we all face a nightmare, don't we? I mean, there's lots of scary things in our lives, but collectively, we will all face the greatest of all nightmares. The consequences of our sin, the reality of death, and an enemy. We all face a nightmare. There's a valley, isn't there? And yet we too, as God's people, are given a champion, a hero, a saving, delivering king who goes to fight a battle that we could never fight that we could never win, and he wins on our behalf. 
Remember the word champion? What does it mean? The man who goes between. We have a champion, Jesus, who goes out for us. Our saving, delivering king who goes down into a deeper valley, faces a more formidable giant, and beats that giant for us. Jesus is our champion. Hebrews chapter 12. I love, love, love these verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at these words. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The Greek word right there is archigos, which literally reads, our champion. We have a champion and his name is Jesus. But he's better than David. He's bigger than David. He's more powerful than David because he went down into a deeper valley. Jesus went down into the valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley, he defeated our enemy. You know, way back in Genesis chapter 3, creation has just fallen apart. Humanity is experiencing the consequences of the fall and what sin really means. And God lists out the consequences of what this is going to look like. But in the middle of all of that, he gives people a promise. He says, one day I will send a descendant who is going to crush the head of the evil one and he will bruise your heel. You know, it's amazing when we get to the David scene. Goliath in his armor is described literally as having scales. Now, how is he killed? His head is cut off, right? Fast forward to Jesus, the serpent-crushing Savior, the one who takes his head off, the one who goes down into the valley and wins for us. To defeat our enemy, to overcome the consequences of our sin, and to disarm death of its power. You notice we said four things about David, didn't we? All of them are ultimately true in Jesus. So David's confidence is in the Lord. Think about Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is peering down into the depths of the valley, isn't he? He's looking at what he's going to do and what he's going to have to fight. He prays. He sweats drops of blood. But then he proclaims his confidence in the Heavenly Father. Not my will be done, but yours. Talk about an ultimate confidence. What else do we say about David? His motivation is God's fame. Think about Jesus. <laughs> For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. That he would know us. And then what does he tell us to do? To go with a victory cry into the world. Letting people know, by the way, Jesus is alive and he is our champion. Jesus is all about the fame, right? Thirdly, what do we say about David? He wins through weakness. You want to know the greatest weakness and yet the greatest strength? Just look at the cross. In the cross, the Roman tool of execution, the place where the criminals died, there hangs our Savior, who is dying in our place for our sin, the man who goes in between for us, the man who takes the consequences of sin, undoes the power of death and defeats our enemy. You see, it's amazing in the David story, Goliath's head is sent where? To Jerusalem. So the sign of victory is elevated in that city. Oh, when Jesus died, the sign of our victory is elevated in Jerusalem. And Jesus wins. 
And then we said David's victory was pretty unexpected. Is the same not true for Jesus? The man from Nazareth, the man people rejected, the man the Pharisees didn't really want to know much about, but just to get rid of him, the man who liberated sinners. Talk about unexpected. Jesus has won a victory that we could never win. You see, we have a better David who goes into a deeper valley and wins a bigger battle for people like us. You know how this scene finishes in the Valley of Allah? David wins, the head of Goliath is off. And everything changes. Because no longer can you hear the taunts of this giant. All you can hear is the victory cry of God's people. The Philistines scatter and flee. And the hearts suddenly change in the, Philistine, in the Israelite army. They go from being afraid and greatly dismayed to what? Full of courage and confidence. Why? Because their champion has won. And now instead of shaking at the taunts from the giant, they can now respond with a taunt. And how true is that for us? Our Savior has gone into the valley that once had us terrified and our knees knocking, where we heard the taunts of sin and death and our enemy, but now we can respond with a taunt, just like the Apostle Paul. Death, oh, where is your victory? Death, oh, where is your sting? And now because our champion has won, what do you hear? The knees knocking of God's people today? No, we are not given a spirit of fear. What you can hear is the battle cry of God's people. Our champion has won and he is alive. Jesus is raised. Do you see? That's how we spend our lives. We're not standing on the valley looking at an enemy who terrifies us. His power's undone. We spend our lives chasing away the influence of the enemy and all of his darkness. We go out into the world, don't we? Trampling over the decapitated body of our enemy who's lost his power. And now because of our champion Jesus, we go into the world proclaiming the victory cry. Jesus is alive. He's won. He's raised. Sin is undone. Death does not have its power. Our enemy is defeated. What a beautiful story, huh? When God's people are paralyzed by fear in the face of their greatest nightmare, God provides David a champion a hero, and does the thing that no one else would do. And how about for us? We have a champion who looked down into our greatest nightmare and went down to fight a battle that we could never win, nor we would ever want to fight. And he disarms this enemy. He's done for. Sin is undone. Death has lost its power. And now we live with a battle cry. Why? Because Jesus is our champion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this familiar, historic battle scene in the valley. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to look at it in the same way we would see a sunset. We've read it before, we'll read it again. But today, would you help us to be amazed and by your Spirit, open our eyes to the electrifying truth that you do not save with a sword or spear, but you have ultimately saved us in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have sent one out for us, one who has won through weakness, one whom his fame has gone far, one who showed an ultimate confidence 
And now, Father, would you help us to live with that victory cry of Jesus. Not to be standing on the valley listening to the taunts of sin and death. Not to be the kind of people who have a spirit of fear and knocking knees. Not to be a people who are trembling, but to be a people who know that Jesus is one. So, Father, help us to spend our lives with that battle cry. Help us to be ready to go. To face the injustice of this world. To face the darkness. To face the struggles, the suffering and the hurting. And to bring hope where there is none. To bring the message of resurrection where there is only fear. Father, would would you help us to be just like these Israelites who rush past the, the scene of their decapitated enemy and cry that their champion is one. Father, we praise you that Jesus has won in our place, that he is our champion. And we are praying in the name of our champion, Jesus. Amen.